Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 22nd of May 2023 and this is episode 301. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Dr Diane Ackerson, historian and author, about her research into two remarkable women, Elsie Knocker and Mary Gooden Chisholm, and the adventures they got up to during the First World War. Diane spoke to me from her office in London. Diane, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Um, Well, I've always been um, involved in women's history um, and I've always had a really personal interest in the First World War, though not particularly focused. Um, And then in the course of my research on um, suffragettes and women's suffrage, the Edwardian era, I came across this fantastic story about Elsie Mari and um, Elsie Anoka and Mari Chisholm. Now, it really started with, a, <clears throat> excuse me, a photograph they have at the Imperial War Museum. And it's two women in kind of great coats and boots and probably like um, breeches underneath. And they're wearing headscarves, a bit like wimples. And they're both wearing um, medals and looking very proud. It's obviously a very special day. It's a studio shot. And they um, and they were called the the photograph is captured the Madonnas of Pervisa, so I thought, oh, this is very odd. Who is this? What is this? What what does it mean? And gradually, that's how I got into the story. Where was Pervisa? Well, it was quite near Dixmude in 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 Belgium, not far from Ypres. And uh, why called Madonnas? And I just heard, I just read the story and dug into the story deeper and deeper, deeper. And it emerged that these two extraordinary women were, in fact, the only women to nurse on the Western Front right throughout the course of the First World War. Unfortunately, um, the uh, Imperial War Museum had their diaries and lots of photographs. So it was just a beautiful story of two women who had been highly regarded. They were kind of celebrities in their day. Um, highly meddled during the war for their courage, who had completely fallen off the radar. So I thought, well, it's time to bring them back into the mainstream story, if I can. And that's how I got to write the book. Right. Well, let's start with their early life, early lives. So who were Elsie Knocker and Marie uh, Chisholm? Sorry, Godden Chisholm. Is that the correct pronouncement? That's right. Well, Elsie Knocker, sorry, Elsie Knocker came from a very middle class background, um, both her parents died when she was quite young um, and the, the children, as was normal, were parceled out and sent to family relatives to be looked after. And uh, but but Elsie wasn't. She was. And in those days, adoption was a very loose affair. There was no vetting. There was no formal agencies dealing with it. And the family solicitor had put an advert, I think, in probably the Times or the Telegraph, advertising a child who needed, who, you know, for adoption, if anybody was interested. Anyway, long story short, a rather lovely couple who lived in um, in Wiltshire, near Marlborough, actually adopted Elsie and brought her up as their only child. And in the course of this childhood, she, I mean, the, 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 her parents were extraordinary, especially her father was a classics master at Marlborough College. Um, and he was a great, um, just a fantastic person. He was one of the cleverest men of his generation. He'd gone into teaching, which he loved very much. 
Um, and they they brought her up very much in the surroundings of their um, the, the, the boys at Marlborough College. They used to take her to boxing matches and wrestling matches. So she probably grew up as more of a tomboy than a conventional girl in that late 19th, early 20th century uh, tradition. So she's got these very splendid parents. She hasn't got the um, uh, gender boundaries, really, um, that, that other girls had. And so she had quite a, an interesting childhood and adolescence. She marries, she makes a very bad marriage um, and quickly extricates herself from that, but not before she's had a child. So rather boldly, she um, spent some of a, an inheritance on getting divorced from her husband at the time, which was around about 1910, which was really very unusual circumstances for the day. So we're already alerted to the fact that she is different. She's uh, courageous. And she's uh, not a typical female in really any sense of, of, of the, the word. Um, anyway, when she gets divorced, because divorce, divorced women were kind of scandalous women at the time, they were felt to be kind of Jezebel characters, you know, they were dangerous around other people, especially other men. So she had to restart her life in another part of the country. And she told the world that she was a single mother. She was a widow. Her husband had died. And so it's at this period of her life that she meets, she takes up an interest in motorcycling and she meets um, a young woman who is kind of 18 years younger than her. Elsie is at this point year 30 and Mari Gooden Chisholm is 18. She's just left school, very upper middle class background, um, parents very well off from Dorset um, and really the expectation is she's just going to wait to get married, go to tennis parties and find a partner there. But she's not really interested in that because she too is fascinated by motorcycling. She's got an older brother and she learned motorcycling from him. She became rather a good mechanic, helping him fix his bike. So again, she's unusual too. And her father was very indulgent and bought her, her own motorcycle, which was pretty rare for the time because the number of women in motorcycling in the Edwardian era was, was very small, between 30 and 50, we think, before the Great War broke out. So these two very different women from different backgrounds, big age difference between them, became great pals uh, in, in the two years leading up to the Great War. And their interest, their, their common ground is motorcycling and motorbiking and, and cross-country trials. So that's how they meet. And, and that's really, you know, their different backgrounds really led to them actually becoming great motorcyclists, which is unusual and, and fascinating to me it's a, it's a, slight, it's a slight aside but is there any evidence to suggest that they they were suffragettes not really i've looked through the diaries there's no uh, hint of that um they're so engrossed in their hobby um and um dorset was pretty quiet for for suffrage activity um um elsie's in hampshire again that was quite quiet uh where she lived and she's bringing up her, her little boy and she's kind of trying to carve out a whole new life for herself. Um, so I don't think they were um, involved or engaged with that at all. I'm sure, I'd have, I'm sure I'd have heard from their descendants who I interviewed if that had been the case. So let's get to the, the war. Now, the, when the war breaks out in August 1914, both of them joined something called the Flying Ambulance Corps. How did they end up in this unit and what was this unit and what was their motivation to serve? Well, like everybody in Britain at that time with the outbreak of war, there's a tremendous um, excitement um, about getting engaged in the war. There was this deluded idea it would be over by Christmas. 
Um, and there's a great spirit of volunteerism. And so in a great spirit of volunteerism, they um, go to London. Elsie writes to Marion Dawson and said, come on, we've got to go and do our bit. We've got to go and help in the war effort. Um, we've got motorbikes. We can do all kinds of um, useful things. So there's a big row in um, Mari's family. Her mother doesn't want her to go. Her father doesn't really mind. And so she just sort of... Uh, takes some money, takes a few clothes, gets on a motorbike and drives to London. So there's a big family kind of rift because of her appetite to go to war and her friendship really with Elsie because um, Maria's parents didn't really like her. They were very suspicious of her because of the age difference. They weren't quite sure who she was and all that kind of stuff. So they end up in London. They work for a women's organisation, which is kind of largely staffed by ex-suffragettes. It's called the Women's Emergency Corps. And they do a lot of dispatch riding around London, taking messages hither and yon, white tour backwards and forwards, all that like couriers, really. And that's where their skill was really very well used. Um, of course, it's very early days. Now, at some point in September 1914, um, Mari is spotted driving around London on her motorcycle by a very interesting man called Dr. Hector Monroe. And Hector Monroe was a man who was a, a GP, he was a doctor, had an interest in psychiatry. Um, he was a vegetarian. Um, he was interested in women's issues. He's was a, a feminist, which was very unusual for a man in those days. And also, also he was um, a naturist. So, you know, he's a man with really very progressive and interesting views. He spots Mari zooming along on her motorbike. He gets into a, the story goes, he gets into a taxi, a handsome cab, chases after and said, you're a remarkable motorcyclist. Would you like to come and join my flying ambulance call? We're going to go to Belgium. I'm going to take four women and a group of men to do what we need to do to help the war effort. Would you like to come? She said, yes, I'd love to come. Can I bring my friend Elsie too? He said, yes, okay, fine. So really that is how those two end up being two of the four women who go to uh, war in these extraordinary circumstances and um, they made a huge impact on their arrival the flying ambulance corps was there to bring the wounded back from the battlefield into local hospitals in the towns in northern belgium and, and that's what they did really from september through to late october so what happens to them after this and for the rest of the war well what they noticed was they were going out, picking up the wounded, bringing them back to a town in Belgium called Fern. And they noticed that an orc, because they had a, a base there, um, the ambulance squad had a base there, and they were using um, convent buildings and help get nuns helping them bring in and deal with the wounded. And they noticed that they were picking up men who really had survivable injuries, but the course of the journey back, the roads are very cratered, it was dangerous. It was taking too long to get them back to the, the, the town to be stabilised. There were a lot of unnecessary deaths and unexpected deaths in those dashes backwards and forwards to the front line. So Elsie said, well, look, this is daft. We're wasting all this time. We're losing all these lives, bringing them here, when in fact we could treat them on the spot. So she decided, and my decided, to actually split away from the ambulance court to some degree and go onto the front line and find a place where they could set up a first aid post. And what they do is they basically introduce the whole notion of golden hour nursing. Now, that's a term that becomes known during the Korean War, where injuries and accidents are stabilised in situ, and then treatment comes later when the patient's been um, settled and basic, you know, basic first aid, first aid has been given. But in fact, it's Elsie and Mari who pioneer this approach to battlefield nursing they're the ones who who do it very very well so they set up in this little village called Pavise 
they find um, in a pretty bombed out landscape, they find a, the ruins of a house with a secure basement. And that's where they set up their first depot. And that's where they deal with Belgian soldiers, because Belgian soldiers in that part, on that part of the Western Front. And that's how they get started. And they become really well known. The British press get hold of the story. And that's the, the, the news and information around the work they're doing, which is extremely dangerous because they're only about 100 yards or 150 yards from the German trenches. So it's, it's fraught with danger. And news of these two, and they often were called the mad English women because it was so dangerous and so hair-raising, that they actually um, news preds, and that's how they get their first medal, which is awarded to them in the early part of 1915, by King um, Albert of the Belgians. And that's really when their fame becomes um, very important and a source of fundraising, because they had to raise all the money they needed to run their first aid post. Um, and this was a huge boost. The celebrity status meant that they could raise funds um, wearing their medals and, and talking about their exploits. When the, the front was quiet, they'd come back to England and they would go around the country on their motorbikes talking about what they were doing in Belgium. And they raised vast sums of money to, to keep going. Now, so that's really the basis of the work they do. It's golden hour treatment on the spot. And of course, the King of the Belgians was very um, proud of them and, and grateful to them. And wounded orderlies were often sent to help them lift some of the heavier patients and just help them with their heavy handling work. And so they run this post in the house and then eventually that becomes very unstable because of various bombardments have undermined the foundations in that part of the village. And they move to somewhere else in the same village and set up another first aid post. And the rooms where they're in are actually reinforced with concrete by Belgian um, army engineers. So they become very much a feature of um, the, the Belgian resistance to German invasion. Um, and the Belgian army were very grateful to them. The Brits really wanted them back to England. They didn't want any women on the Western Front. They want, didn't mind them in military hospitals miles behind the lines, but they were absolutely furious with Elsie and Marjorie. And the British military would turn up and try and, you know, force them to leave or make it so uncomfortable. And in 1915, was a, a, the Treaty of Paris, there was a conference in Paris about this whole business of women and nursing the Western Front. And all of them were ordered back from the front line, back to military hospitals, except Elsie and Mari. They were allowed to stay where they were purely because they had these very important royal connections who admired them and thought a great deal about their work. So they were allowed to stay. All other women got pushed back miles behind the lines. And again, this adds to their status and their reputation because they're there 100 yards from the German trenches. And the German soldiers nearby absolutely were devoted to them. I mean, it was a very strange time when there was a lot of fraternizing with the enemy because the, the Germans would send all sorts of messages saying, look, there's going to be a bombardment coming quite soon. So be careful and all that kind of stuff. So there were, there were good and cordial relations between the Germans who are nearby, who thought a great deal of them. But I mean, this would have been very much frowned upon if the British military authorities had heard about it. But it was part of the life they created for themselves in the Western Front. If you think they were there in Belgium from September 1914, they were there right until March 1918, all, all through those years, all through those terrible winters and summers and awful weather and difficulty getting food. I mean, they relied on food being brought to them by 
British and Belgian soldiers who would go there to, to meet these extraordinary women. They were real, the people you had to meet on the Western Front, these two. And they relied on parcels from home. Um, their diet was very odd. It was a lot of biscuits and tin sardines, a lot of alcohol, a lot of parties. Um, and it was a very strange time, very important time, extremely dangerous. But they tried to make the place as homely as they could, to I think to be able to get through it, because when they looked out of the windows, all they could see was this completely blitzed landscape of decomposing animals. Um, the, it was a very waterlogged environment. The place stank because of decomposing animals and decomposing human flesh. And it was grim. So within, they turned inside, you know, they looked into their accommodation where they were, and they tried to make it as cosy and as comfortable as possible. And, and it's an extraordinary achievement of theirs to have survived for so long and in fact they were they were driven really from Belgium by the first of two gas attacks that happened in March 1918. And what actually kept them going over this uh, time? I wonder whether you could tell us about their sort of personalities and their sort of character and, and what sort of motivated them to survive and, and carry on in these appalling conditions. Well they were um, very pro-Belgian um, because there's a great deal of affection for the Belgians in the war. Remember, poor little Belgium, brave little Belgium. A lot of Belgian refugees came to England and perhaps, and some of them have settled here for the rest of their lives. So there's a great affection for and, and strong feelings about the Belgians and their situation. They both have this can-do attitude. Um, they're women who are motorcyclists, so they don't mind getting their hands dirty because bikes used to break down all the time. So... That, you know, they're kind of tomboys um, and they can fix bikes. They're, they're good mechanics. So they're not the typical Edwardian female by any means. Um, they Elsie's uh, a, a trained nurse, but she was a children's nurse, actually. So she had no preparation for the kind of life they had there and the injuries they were witnessing. Um, and Mari just went along with this and, and was having a great time. Remember, she kind of fallen out with her family to go to Belgium. So... Um, there was, you know, there are sort of family tensions, and she was happy to stay there. But of course, an important part of their time there was was parties and romance. And and um, Elsie ended up marrying a, a Belgian airman. He was an observer in the Belgian um, um, air force, if you like. And so she had this. I mean, it must have been like a holiday romance. They they met in nineteen fifteen. They married in nineteen sixteen, and. Tatler wrote about it in their magazine and Mari was their bridesmaid. I mean, they didn't have any nice clothes or anything like that, particularly because they just more or less the clothes they stood up in. Um, but they, 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 there was a wedding at uh, a lovely seaside town called Dupana. And um, and uh, Harry, Harry carried on with his flying career. He sometimes come round to the first aid post to see Elsie. But she carried on. She said, I'm not going back to England. I'm going to stay here and do my work. And he's going to do his work and we will see each other. But she, there was no, ever, never a possibility she was going to go back. And Mari, too, had a bit of a romance. There was a, a young um, British flying officer uh, called Jack Peter. And they had a romance. Um, and the intention was that they would marry uh, when they got back, if they survived when they got back to England. But sadly, Jack died in um, in an accident uh, in 1917, and um, and that you know was terrible sadness for um, Mari, but she carried on. She stayed there because they were determined to be in this little village until the war ended. However, that was going to end. 
And what impact did their service have on the media, military and public at large? Um, well, the British Army weren't that pleased about it. And in fact, they were the last to give them a medal. Um, they, give, they gave them the, uh, the um, military medal um, rather grudgingly because France had medaled them. The Belgians had medaled them. Other organisations give them all kinds of awards. So they were not happy at this sort of open defiance. So that was a bit of a problem in terms of British uh, military establishment. But the public were fascinated by them. And as I said, when the fighting stopped, because it did stop for periods of the war, they would come back to England on the motorbikes and they would show sort of lantern slideshows of what they were doing, um, photographs of the landscape, the soldiers, um, what the village was like, and generally set up the context in which their work was being um, conducted. The Daily Mirror sent one of their best photographers out there and took a whole load of pictures of them in, in various scenes. And it really brought home to the British public, because the, the mirror did a big splash with all the images. And it uh, it really was brought home to the British public what these two women were doing and how dangerous it was, how awful it was, how the conditions were absolutely vile. But there they were doing it. And there was immense pride. Lots of money was raised. And, um, you know, they were known as the Angels of Pavise or the Madonnas of Pavise because they were these kind of iconic figures in this really very grim theatre of war. And you talked about their decorations. Did they actually receive a large amount of medals from various sources? Between them, they had 17 different awards and all their medals are actually held by the Imperial War Museum. So, you know, they were very highly decorated women. It's extraordinary they disappeared from off the radar as more or less as soon as the war was over. And they had to then think about what they were going to do with the rest of their lives. Which brings me neatly on to that question. What happened to them <laughs> after the war? Well, um, uh, in 1918, the gas attack, it was an arsenic gas attack, which sent them both back to England to recover. Mari was, um, Elsie was much more badly hurt than Mari. Um, she couldn't go back to nurse in Belgium. She was much more badly affected by the gas. Um, and uh, Mari did go back on her own, opened up the post, had a couple of Belgian soldiers helping her. But then she was gassed again with arsenic gas. And she came back to Blighty in April 1918, and they remained in England. They never went back to Blighty, certainly while the uh, Pervis, while the war was on. But um, that was always a great source of regret for both of them. They weren't there at the end. And, um, you know, this, this time in France was really the defining moment of their lives. It was going to be very hard to um, piece another life together after that. Um, Elsie's marriage came into got into trouble because her husband was a Belgian aristocrat and his family were horrified that he'd married a complete stranger. They didn't know who she was. I'm sure they'd lined up another aristocrat for him to marry, a, a Belgian woman. And so when he announced he'd married this woman, there was a lot of trouble. And they conducted a private investigation into Elsie and found out that she actually was a divorced woman and that her husband, that she wasn't a widow, she was a divorce, saying her husband was still alive. And they were very um, important Catholics in Belgium. They had relatives at the Vatican. So as far as they, was con they were concerned, it was a bigamous marriage. And really the marriage collapsed under the weight of this revelation. Poor Elsie um, had told a lie about her true marital status 
But a lot of women had to do that to be able to rebuild a life. You know, the, there was such a stigma about divorced women that women don't did have to kind of bend the truth and start all over again. So her marriage collapses. Now, Mari, when she finds out about Elsie's lie, it kind of ends their friendship. It destroys their relationship, which is really sad and shocking because they've been through so much together, so much danger, so much sadness, so much happiness. But when Mari found that out, it kind of broke her a bit because after all, she'd left her family in difficult circumstances to, to follow this woman's advice and be with her. And it caused a lot of tension at home and problems. So um, to us, it sounds very unforgiving of Mari to have just cut Elsie out of her life, but she was very hurt, she was very upset, and she was shocked. And it was about, it was really about societal attitudes. Uh, that was what was really informing her decision to end this friendship, which really should have been a friendship for life. So Elsie has to finds herself suddenly dumped by her husband when she thought she'd made the perfect marriage. She comes back to England. She um, has her son to bring up because her adoptive parents have been looking after him all these years. And she's got to find a job. And she ends up actually as a housekeeper for much of the 1920s to some quite interesting characters. Uh, nobody particularly famous, but that's how she earned has to earn to, uh, her living as a kind of a a senior servant within somebody else's household. She's not that thrilled about that. She wants to, you know, have a, a different life, but this is the only work that she can find. Now, Mari, when she goes back, she's got to make peace with her parents. Um, but the problem is her parents have relocated to Trinidad where her father had bought a cocoa plantation. So she actually hasn't got a home in England anymore. So she kind of strikes up a friendship with a very interesting woman she met in the late, um, just before 1920. They became firm friends forever. They lived together forever. And they did all kinds of things like breeding ducks and birds. And they were very successful at that. And they have a farm. They lived in Jersey for a while, have a big um, place in Scotland. And so they become, they get, take part in kind of Olympics for but for duck breeders, and they were really successful and very famous. So Amari has a much nicer life. It's a stable life. She's got a home. She has money. Um, and she is able to rebuild her life with this other female friend. And she's got, she's got nieces and nephews. And so it's, you know, it's okay. You know, it's, it's very different to the life she had in the war. But she's able to build her life because she does have some financial resources and she has this great friendship, which is a lifelong friendship. And those two women are together until until they died in the 1970s. So um, Mari's story is is um, positive and um, more successful, if you like, whereas Elsie's life for the rest of her life was a bit of a struggle. And how did their papers end up in the IWM? Um, well, uh, both of them actually bequeathed their papers in their wills to the Imperial War Museum. So they've got this lovely archive of boxes of photographs and diaries. And the National Library of Scotland have got um, some of um, Mari's materials as well, her photographs. She's, they've got her photographs with the Imperial War Museum have got both their sets of diaries. And they're fascinating to read. They really are. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work and their story? Well, um, in 2009, I published a book called Elsie and Murray Go to War. 
um, about their stories. It, it's a biography of the two women, really, but very much with the First World War at the heart of their lives. And it's extraordinary when I think about their afterlives because um, Elsie was so kind of obsessed with his time in um, Belgium that she called her house Pavie's Cottage. And uh, whenever it was the anniversary of them going to Belgium, she would fly a, a Belgian flag in the back garden. And so it was something she could never really let go of. I mean, Mari too was uh, felt an important attachment to um, Pavise and that part of her life. Um, but I, I was so fascinated to understand their time during the war or what it tells us about the war. And their diaries are really, sometimes they're sort of written on the back of the, an ambulance steps or they're waiting for the bomb, you know, the shelling to finish where they can go in and bring out patients to take back to the first aid post. So my book really explores as much as can be discovered about um, these two women in the context of the war. And I mean, they're, they're such a powerful uh, it's such a powerful story that very often I think about them. They cross on my mind. You know, it's been a long time since that book came out, more than 10 years. But I still think about them. I still kind of salute them for the extraordinary courage and compassion they showed through the war. They didn't get paid. They had to raise all their own funds. And it was it was grim, but they made the best of it and kind of made their, their rather um, grim uh, location into home from home. And I think they're I think they're very inspiring in that sense because they had such resilience, they're able to overcome the most appalling circumstances. And I think we can learn a lot from them really. <laughs> so I think if if you want to find out more about these two, then please read my book because I think you'll it's a it's a pretty um uh, vivid but also heartwarming story. Diane, thank you very much for your time. Okay. Thanks Tom. Good to talk to you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.